All right. Thank you so much, worship team. Appreciate that. Good way to start off a discussion uh, on prayer. We are, um, so we're wrapping up our series on the Lord's Prayer tonight, and we're going to look at what I've called uh, uh, an excursus on forgiveness, which is the last part of the, the Lord's Prayer. Before we do that, just a quick uh, promo. Um, next week, we're going to begin a new series called The Gospel-Centered Life. And uh, I don't like to uh, over-promote and under-deliver, over-promise, but I do think this is going to be, uh, this has the potential of being a life-changing sort of series. It's a nine-week series, and, uh, you know, we talk about gospel-centered, a lot of stuff, you know, the gospel-centered worship and gospel-centered community and gospel-centered, you know, everything. And, um, and yet, we can, you can actually be gospel-centered, say you're gospel-centered, and not really be transformed by the power of the gospel. And so um, we're going to look at what does it mean to be gospel-centered, you know, on Tuesday morning and Friday evening and Saturday afternoon. And so what does it mean to be gospel-centered? And what does the centrality of the gospel mean to, for example, the man who is failing at his job? How does the gospel help that person? The woman whose husband doesn't show her love or is not interested in this whole Christianity thing. Uh, the couple who can't stop fighting over everything, even little small things. What does the gospel mean uh, for this couple? What does the gospel mean to the man and woman whose child has rebelled? Maybe it's a teenager and they just can't seem to get any traction. How does the gospel help this couple? The man struggling with same-sex attraction, the woman who hastes to look at herself in the mirror has located all of her identity in her own physical appearance. What does the gospel have to say about that? The couple who are empty nesters and don't really know each other. Uh, I've, I had a woman say to me one time, she's probably in her late 50s, she said there's all kinds of books, there are all kinds of books written on, uh, on becoming a first-time parent, and even though, of course, you're never really prepared, right? You don't, you know, you know what you're getting into, but there are a lot of books written on that. But she said there's, there are no books written on that I can find on becoming a first-time empty nester. And she said my husband and I, you know, they were both super busy with uh, sports and higher education and everything else. And, and after their kids went away, they kind of looked at each other and they said, we don't even really know each other. How does the gospel help or inform that relationship? Uh the man who's secretly caught up in pornography, the woman who, who spends, uh, she goes online and spends and spends way beyond the budget. No one knows this, but maybe except her and her husband. How, do the, how does the gospel actually apply to those situations and many, many more? So we're, we're going to go through this book called The Gospel-Centered Life, and um, I don't have any extra copies, but I'm, I'm happy to get some, some more if you want to go along with this and kind of read along. But we'll, we'll have several people uh, teaching, so I'll teach a, a few weeks and then uh, some some other gifted teachers, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, tonight, though, we're wrapping up our series in the Lord's Prayer, this discussion on uh, forgiveness. And let me just offer this caveat, because I've got, you know, 40 minutes or so to talk on forgiveness, which is most of the the counseling that I do as a pastor and have done over the last nearly two decades, much of it has to do with actually forgiveness. How do I forgive this person? And so, Here's my caveat. I'm not going to answer every question, of course. I'm not going to resolve every tension. Um, I taught a six-week series on forgiveness about 10 years ago, and even after that, six weeks of it, um, you know, looking at the biblical view of forgiveness, there were still tons and tons of questions. So I understand that there are going to be questions you have, 
and that I don't even get anywhere near. And so what I would say to that is a couple things. Um, one, you know, you can, I'm, I'm available. So if you want to, you can get with Miss Terry Pruitt. You can email me. We can, we can sit down. I'd, I'd love to, uh, part of the delight of being a shepherd is I'd love to, you know, work through things like that with you. And the other one is I've read, I don't know, a bunch of books on forgiveness. The very best one I've ever read is called Unpacking Forgiveness. And I think we have a picture that you probably can't see that from way back here, but that's what it looks like. It's by Chris Bronze, and um, and it's it's a fantastic book. It's the it is the again it's the single best book that I've read on it on a on a and it's not just it's not theolo- it's not just theological. It's not um, sort of theoretical. It's very practical. In you know the the subtitle is biblical answers for complex questions and deep wounds. So you might uh, check that out. And if I'm not mistaken, Van, you can correct me on this, but. Uh, Chris Bronze, who's a friend of mine, he actually also wrote the book, uh, When the Word Drives Your Pastoral Search. And I think you guys referenced that, as I recall, in, in the, one of the search teams that uh, brought me here. So this is a, a reliable uh, author, and I think you benefit if you want to read more about that. So, okay, so uh, turn over to Matthew chapter 6. And again, we're only going to look at two verses, um, verses 14 and 15. Let me read uh, 12, which also talks about forgiveness. I'll read 12 and then 14 and 15. Um, so we saw this, the so-called we petition last week, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then there's the lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then verse 14, Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. And then verse 15, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, we talked about this just very, very briefly last week. This is, this is troubling if it's not understood properly. And here's why I say it's troubling. It does seem like Jesus is adding a stipulation to his forgiveness. Okay, so it seems like he's saying... Uh, if you don't, I mean, it's, uh, I just read it, right? There's a condition there. If you don't forgive, Jesus says, neither will your father forgive you. And I say that that's, that's problematic because, uh, if not understood correctly, because the entire witness of Scripture is that forgiveness from God, salvation, pardon for sin, it's a free gift. It's not based on anything we do or don't do. It's not based on any goodness, any church attendance, any, any, any activity or works of ours. Um, Ephesians 2, which is well known, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast or no one may boast. And so the good news of the gospel is we're saved not by our works, but by faith in Christ's work. And then we could even say our righteousness, even our forgiveness of others, that doesn't merit us anything from God. So anybody study philosophy in here or logic, there's a if you, if you study logic, uh, uh, Dusty is a logician, right? A, a guy who studied logic. But, there's a, but if, you, if you're familiar with something called a, a syllogism, syllogism is three, three um, phrases that explain or make sense of a particular concept. So here's a, here's a syllogism as it relates to forgiveness. The first statement is salvation is a free gift. And that is, we know that throughout the scripture. And I could go to, you know, I could go to a dozen places right now. Uh, we could talk about that. Uh, the second uh, aspect of that syllogism is salvation equals forgiveness. So at the heart of salvation is, in fact, forgiveness. Matthew 1 talks about Jesus coming, uh, 
And what is, what is declared? His name is Jesus. He will, be, he will save his people from their sins. Salvation equals forgiveness. And again, you know, we've we're got a lot to cover tonight, so I'm not going to go through the, all the references that, that uh, verify or validate that. But then the third part of that is, therefore, forgiveness is a free gift. So we are forgiven from our sins, trespasses, offenses, uh, are, are the way that we've fallen short of God's standard, not by anything we do. Simply, it's a free gift that is ours by faith. If that's the case, then what is Jesus talking about here when he makes this statement, if you forgive God, your heavenly, or forgive others, rather, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive you. Well, here's, here's what he's saying. And I, well, here, let me, let me work this out through three points, and I'll explain. Here's the first point I want to make. When we're, when we're commanded to forgive, it's linked to, those commands are linked to the forgiveness we have received in Christ. So I'm going to make this argument here in, in three points. So I'm a preacher, so I've got to do that, right? And I don't have a poem at the end, but we'll, we'll do, work this through three points. So the first point is, when God commands us to forgive, that command is linked to the forgiveness we have received in Christ. Um, the command to forgive pops, out through, pops up throughout the New Testament. It's a command uh, for us to obey, even when we've been wronged by the same person countless times. That person comes, they repent, they seek our forgiveness, we, we're, we're commanded to forgive. Um, but virtually every time that command appears, it is in the context of the forgiveness that we have received. I'll give you a couple of examples. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Here's another one, Colossians 3. Uh, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So when God issues this command to forgive, it's in the context of I could give you more examples of what he has done for us in Christ. And that brings us to one of the most important concepts when understanding the scriptures. And it's the difference between the indicatives and the imperatives. Okay, So the indicatives, if you're, if you're an English major, and I forget who Johnny maybe told me he studied English for a while, whatever it is, if you, if you know English, the indicatives indicate... You're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with forgiveness? Just give me a moment, okay? Bear with me here. The indicatives indicate something that has been done, okay? The imperatives tell us to do something. Imperative is a command, an exhortation, you know, a demand, so on. So, an in, so, so for example, um, you have been bought with a price. That's an indicative. It indicates, it describes what's been done. Therefore honor God with your bodies. That's an imperative, right? So in the scriptures, and this is going to, now th this may hover above your heads for a little bit, but I think as we continue to talk about this over weeks and months and years and so on, it'll, it'll, it'll help in your parenting, it'll help in your relationships, it'll help in your, as you manage people, whatever it is. The imperatives in scripture, they always flow out of the indicatives. So whenever we're told to do something, the basis for that is what God has done for us. So think of it this way, the indicatives, what God has done, the imperatives, what, what we're called to do. And the same is true with the command to forgive. It flows out of the indicative, what God has done, God has forgiven you. Um, so 
again, when I use the term indicative, I'm talking about what's already been declared about you, indicated about you. Uh, the indicative informs us, us, us of an accomplished fact. Uh, an imperative then tells us what we're supposed to do. And in the, in the Bible, the indicatives are essential because they tell us about what God has done for us and what God has declared us to be. But it's so easy to assume that we know all the indicatives and we just want to run right to the imperatives. Just tell me what I have to do. Man, if I had a dollar for every time I've heard that in 18 years of pastoral ministry. No, just tell me what I need to do. Well, that's not the way. It doesn't work like that. I could tell you what you need to do, but you're still not going to have the motivation, the desire, the ability, the enable, whatever it is. I was, I'm reading a great book right now called Preaching Christ from All the Scriptures um, by a guy by the name of Dennis Johnson. And he says this, uh, the apostolic model of paranesis, which is a word that just means exhortation, um, in the New Testament, and I think, okay, thank you. Uh, it's not Frank, I think it's Jesse, whoever's up there, thank you. The, the apostolic model of paranesis, exhortation in the New Testament, grounds believers' obligation in the gospel itself, showing how the indicatives describing Christ's saving work precede and entail the imperatives that define our believing response to his mercy. In other words, our obedience to God in any area, you can take any area of life, but especially the area of forgiveness. As I know, I don't, I'm, I'm meeting with people every week, and I'm having lunch with people all the time, and I'm getting to know the people of this church, which has been a, a tremendous delight to me. But I don't know the stories like I knew of the church, you know, the people that I church, church I served for eight plus years. But I do know, in the short time I've been here, that some of you, some of the people in our church, have been hurt deeply, very deeply. Some of you have been wronged terribly. And some of you, and, and some of the people in our church have gone through unbelievable things. And in order for us to understand and apply that command to forgive, we have to recognize what God has done for us in Christ. I'll give you a, I could give you a number of examples of how this plays out, but let me give you one that's, it's, it's kind of lighthearted, but it's, it is important. There, uh, about a year and a half ago, Janine and I had lunch with a couple. We just met them, new to our church. They were, they were from Pasadena, and we were in Corona, which is uh, about an hour away. And we sat down with them over lunch. They started telling us about some of the, the initial struggles they'd had when they, got, when they first got married, and struggles that actually took them years to get beyond. Um, and and he was, a lot of it had to do with cultural differences. So the young lady, I guess they were probably in, I guess they were probably 30, I'm guessing, 32. The young lady was uh, a Chinese by ethnicity, but she was raised in Indonesia. And the young man was an Anglo-Caucasian who was born and raised in North Carolina. Now, if you know anything about, you know that cultural differences, there's a difference in, in culture between Indonesia and North Carolina, right? The way they think, I mean, you, you know, that's pretty clear. And it'll come up in this, in this conversation we had. So they were telling us that for the first two years of their marriage, they, they, they didn't even know if they were going to make it. They had such a difficult time. And one of the things that happened was um, they, <clears throat> this couple, they had not met her parents until they got married. So they'd never met, you know, Indonesia's, I don't know what it is, 11,000 miles away. It's a long way away. They had not met her parents until they got married. The first time they met her parents, um, the guy who's from North Carolina, he goes in the house and he has his shoes on. Well, you know, 
he didn't think anything about that, right? I mean, I guess in North Carolina, a lot of times you don't wear shoes, you know, unless you're going to the outhouse or something. So they, uh, this is in Alabama now making fun of North Carolinians. But so he, he you know, he, he wore his shoes in the house. He didn't think anything about it. He just kept his shoes on all the time. This was a terrible offense to this lady's parents. And uh, they just thought the guy was, uh, you know, barbaric. You know, who wears your shoes in the house? It was a terrible cultural offense against her parents. And this lady explained to me and, and to Janine that one of the things that was part of her culture was that it was considered, it was a very noble thing. In fact, it was a necessary thing to hold a grudge against someone who, has, who had wronged or offended your parents. And so she's newly married. She's been married, I don't know, two weeks, she meets, you know, she and her husband then meet, you know, he meets her parents and he offends him so badly that she believes culturally that her only, only responsibility or obligation is to then hold a grudge against her own husband. And this went on for a long time, a long time. She got, got plugged into a church in Pasadena and, and started wrestling with this idea of forgiveness. And she realized that, now of course, the consequences of not forgiving were pretty stark. In that situation, it was causing a huge rift in their marriage. Um, it was it was divided. They, they weren't being together physically. They were they were at odds with each other. And what she realized was not only is this causing all kinds of problems for me physically, uh, you know, emotionally, whatever. Um, but I don't know how I reconcile this with the teaching of Scripture. She was having a hard time with that. And what she realized was now people were telling her. The people in the church started telling her, "You must forgive. You must forgive. You must forgive." But it wasn't helping her very much. Some people, you know, even love, un, or lovelessly, unlovingly saying, what's wrong with you, right? What's wrong with you? Just forgive and move on. It wasn't helping. And, and let me tell you, that's not the approach that we see in the scriptures, just hammering people with imperatives. I love what Sinclair Ferguson, who's a pastor and author in um, Mississippi, says this, the apostles do not make the mistake that's often made in Christian ministry. For the apostles, the indicatives are more powerful than, than the imperatives. So often in our preaching, our indicatives are not strong enough, great enough, holy enough, or gracious enough. That is to say, we're really not explaining the beauty and sufficiency of the gospel, the beauty of God, the holiness of God. But they're not all of those things. To, they're not enough to sustain the power of the imperatives. And so our teaching on holiness becomes a whip or a rod to beat our people's backs because we've looked at the New Testament and that's all we ourselves have seen. All we've seen are the imperatives. We're not looking at the indicatives, all the beautiful things that God has done for us in Christ. So there's a place for commands, of course. We're, we're called to obey the commands. I would never diminish that. But if they're not rooted in, soaked in, preceded by, dripping with the gospel indicatives, they will not bring any real change or ability to obey. Think about my friend uh, Celestin Musakura, who is uh, he's a leader in Rwanda, a ministry called uh, African Leaders uh, for Reconciliation. Uh, Celestin Mukura was over in the United States working on a PhD in January of 1998. And this is when, of course, a lot of things were going on with Rwanda. Um, and he's over working on a PhD and unbeknownst to him, his, his village is raided and his mother and father and brother and nieces and nephews are all killed while he's over. He gets, and then you talk about a callous way, he gets a message in, in later on, mid, mid-January 1998, that his whole tribe, all of his family have been killed, murdered, brutally murdered. 
And so he's thinking, I mean, how, how do you even begin to, you know, your, your siblings and your parents, I don't know where his own children were at the time. Thankfully they were spared, but his parents, his, they're, his, they're all gone. They're all killed. How, do he, how does he even begin to? And so he, people started telling him, you know, you must forgive and, you know, you can't hold on to bitterness and so on. And that's true. But he wrote a, a great little book, even, uh, I think it's called Even As I Have Been Forgiven or Even As God Forgiven You or something. And, and he talks about how it was ultimately coming back to the indicatives that only got, that's where he got to the place where he's able to forgive. Um, so when we talk about the indicatives, we're talking about the beauty of the gospel. What, what is exactly the gospel of grace? One of the best ex- explanations is from Romans 5. It says this, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows us his love, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, there are four words that describe who and where we were when God loved us. Weak, enemies, sinners, and ungodly. This is where we were when God lavished his love on us in Christ. We weren't strong, uh, beautiful, righteous, perfect people. He saved us when we were at odds with him. Not after we cleaned ourselves up, not after we got our act together, not after we met God halfway, not even after we proved to be serious about spiritual things. No. God's love comes first. He pursues us. He goes after the weak, the sinful, the arrogant, the ugly, the blind, the hateful, the immoral, and he loves them. His love is what makes them what they're not, than forgiven children. Martin Luther had a a saying, he would say, God doesn't love sinners because they're attractive, Sinners are attractive to God because he loves them. So God goes after us when we were weak, enemies, and so on. So God's love then takes the form of forgiveness. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us so that we could be forgiven of the actual, the greatest sin of all time, and that is our revolt against the God who made us. So God goes after us. He saves us. What that means is if you're in Christ, your position is one who is been forgiven. That's who you are if you're in Christ. Before you get out of bed in the morning, before you, you, you pour your first cup of coffee, before you, you toast your waffles or eat your cereal or whatever it is, whatever you do, before you do anything, you, God has already spoken his approval over you in Jesus Christ if you're in Christ. You're already forgiven. That's who you are. You are a forgiven child of God. Now, we can take it a step further before and say even this, you talk about the beauty and, and the, the, mirac- the miracle of grace, before you were even born, before you were even born, God did something for you. He chose you to be a son or daughter. He determined that he would bring you to himself, and he did. He made it possible for you to have faith. He crushed your self-righteousness and your self-reliant heart in order to give you life. So all that is yours in Christ. Not because you did anything, not because I did anything but because God is loving and merciful and gracious. In fact, we even say, not only, not because we didn't, but even in spite of what we've done, God has loved us with this sort of love. Now, you say, what does that have to do with forgiveness? Okay, look at verses 14 and 15 again. Let me read it again. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Is, God say, is Jesus saying that God's forgiveness is conditional, that it has to be earned, merited, won, whatever it is? No. Here's what he's saying. This is our, our second point here. Here's what he's saying. Those who have been forgiven necessarily forgive. Those who don't forgive show that they don't truly know God's forgiveness. So he's not, Jesus is not saying, if you do, 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 you will be forgiven. He's saying, no, if you forgive, you give evidence of the fact you have been forgiven. If you refuse forgiveness, if you refuse forgiveness, you give evidence of the fact you've never really experienced the supernatural saving forgiveness of this loving God. I don't remember if I shared this before. If I have, forgive me, but I maybe it was in a staff meeting. I don't remember, but I got a call one Friday morning really early, and Friday it was my day off, but I spent the, usually spent the first half, you know, part of the morning studying, wrapping things up, and um, and I got a call from this this lady, and I could barely understand her. She was sobbing. She was crying so hard. And I said, okay, wait, just slow, just slow down. Slow down. She said, can you please come over here? My husband and I, we need you. I said, what's going on? She said, I can't, I can't get, just please come over here. So I go over to their house. They were, they were only a couple miles from where I live. I go over to their house, and their faces are puffy. They're red. And they just, they look like they hadn't been, you know, to sleep all night. And I said, well, tell me what happened. And they just sat there. Neither one really wanted to get into it. But finally, the woman said, well, I, I discovered, I found out last night, this morning, early this morning, that my husband, who was sitting right there, that he was out last night and he was unfaithful to me. Now, if that, as if that's not hard enough, then she paused and she said, and it was, it was with a man. So her husband that she'd been with for four years uh, had been out the night before and had been involved with, in, with a man. And she said, like, I, I don't even know. I don't even know where to begin to even think through this. Like, I don't even know where to start. And I was there for a couple of hours. And, of course, you, you can't remedy such a situation in a couple of hours. But the more that I talked with them and, and met with them, it was only by the power of the gospel that she came to realize. And it was, it's a supernatural thing. The Holy Spirit, you know, is the one who did the work in this. She came to realize all the forgiveness that she had received by God in Christ. And she said to me sometime later, she said, how could I possibly, and, in, and her husband was broken. I mean, he was absolutely broken. But she said, how could I possibly withhold forgiveness in light of the forgiveness that I'd received by God? And that was the beginning of a long, I mean, believe me, it was a long, arduous road to recovery, restoration. Um, but it was only the recognition of all that she had received by God in Christ that enabled her uh, to get to that point. There is no forgiveness for the one who does not forgive, not because God's forgiveness must be earned, but because an unforgiving spirit bears strong witness to the fact that a person has never experienced God's forgiveness in Christ. And a person who emphatically says, I will never forgive, doesn't know God's forgiveness. 
Or, I mean, unless, now of course a person can say that in anger, a person can say that in hurt and disgust, but let me say a person who says that and stays there doesn't know God's forgiveness. You can't determine, I can't determine in my heart that I'm not going to forgive someone if I really understand what I've been forgiven. It just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Uh, New Testament scholar John Stott says this, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. Now, that's not to say that the harm inflicted on you by someone else is not a big deal. It is a big deal. It is a big deal. The pain that you've gone through is real. The suffering is real. And I would never minimize that, nor should anyone else. This is real. The suffering that we experience at the hands of other people is real, painful suffering. So no one should minimize that. But it's also critical to recognize that nothing we've gone through could ever be as bad as our sin against God Not because of the nature of our sin necessarily, but because the one against whom we sin, who is perfect, who is holy, the one in whom there is no darkness. So what makes it such a big deal, what makes sin so egregious is the character of the one against whom we sin. And the one who is in Christ, having a newfound understanding of God's holiness, her sinfulness, his rebellion, God's love anyway, that person then becomes then at least willing and ultimately eventually eager to forgive. Now, it must be said, it's not simply saying certain words that enable someone to forgive, right? And I've been in, in, my, have been in counseling situations where when I've heard the harm that's been inflicted about someone, towards someone else, on someone else, I realize right away, like, I don't have an answer there's no sort of magic set phrase or, you know, if I say this, you know, of course, you know, you, you comfort anybody, you know, everybody says, I'm sorry for your loss. That's, that's helpful if it's meaningful, but that doesn't really, I mean, you know, that doesn't make everything better. There's no set of words that actually can remedy the situation. Um, what do you say to someone who's been abused by their very own father? What, what do you say to someone who to a man who has been betrayed by his wife, the wife he trusted multiple times. I mean, how do you, what words are going to help? You know, how can words alone move that person to forgive? There are no words that can be said to a woman who's been abandoned by her husband. We had a great a, a fam, a friend, a family that were, that were friends of ours, uh, a young lady, uh, which wasn't young, I guess. Well, I mean, it depends on your perspective. I won't tell you her age now, but uh, she was a lady. And uh, she, had, uh, she had four boys. She was Vietnamese, and her husband had abandoned her. And was just out, you know, with woman after woman, not coming home. And her four boys, uh, one of them was one of my son's best friends, and another one was just, I mean, a year younger, and just the sweet, they're just the sweetest. I just love those kids to death. And they were in our home, and, and our kids were in their home. And, and, and I remember we were having a study on uh, one time on the character of God, and how our perspective, how our human father can, can influence, of course, and, and color our perspective on God. And this little kid, he's probably eighth grade, you know, he just, he couldn't get his mind around a God who would be faithful regardless. A God who was going to be present 
at all times because of what he'd seen by his, by his earthly father. And so we have, um, either, there aren't words that you can give to someone that will provide, you know, uh, the sort of healing. Now, words are critical, but it takes more than words. What it takes is the real supernatural experience of forgiveness. Uh, by this, I mean what it takes, be, it takes being united with Christ. That's what that, it, the union with Christ. The doctrine of the union with Christ is one of the most misunderstood doctrines in the Christian faith, and I certainly don't have time to clear it all up tonight. But um, it refers to all the benefits, all the blessings, all the gifts that are ours in Christ as part of our salvation. The scriptures say, for example, we walk in Christ, we live in Christ, we conquer in Christ, all of these things. And when the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ, one of the benefits is transformation. And I said this on Sunday morning, you know, when, when God makes us alive in Christ, we, the regeneration, the new birth, John 3, you know, which we can't, we don't know when, it's just Jesus equates it with the wind. You don't know where, where the wind is blowing, but you can tell where it's been. And so when God makes us alive in Christ, we, we are alive in Christ, things that are alive necessarily grow. Things that are alive necessarily grow. Now, the process of sanctification is a long haul. It's a lifetime. And as I said on Sunday, sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back. And sometimes it's two steps forward and three steps back. But, but ultimately, we're moving forward because God is the one who sanctifies. God is the one who transforms. He does the work of transformation. He transforms. He conforms into the image of Christ those who belong to him. And part of the Spirit's work in us is both to reassure us of God's pleasure in us, in Christ, his approval, and his forgiveness. So he, so he causes us to become aware, supernaturally, spiritually aware of the forgiveness that we have received. This is why one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy, right? If you are a Christian and, you, and you're joyless all the time, that's a concern, right? Have you ever met, you know, you met someone who calls himself or herself a Christian, just like, that person is like always miserable, always unhappy. That shouldn't be the case. Now, it doesn't mean we walk around with fake smiles and we speak in a sing-song voice. And, you know, no, I'm not saying that. But there is the real experience of joy. And what is it that brings joy? What's the, the, the overall witness of the Scriptures, what is it that brings joy? It is the forgiveness of sin. Psalm 51, David says, oh, night and day, my bones ached. I'm in physical pain here. I can't even move around, right? Why? Because I'm not, because I haven't been forgiven. My sins I've not made known to you. So it's joy that comes from the forgiveness of sins. Um, and so what this means is practicing forgiveness is not simply a matter of doubling down our efforts, trying harder, putting our mind to it, digging down deep or anything like that. It's more a matter of resting in, depending on the power that is at work in us. Here's our third point this morning. In Christ, our sinful flesh is put to death, and a new power is at work within us, enabling us to experience and grant forgiveness. Now, as long as we live in these earthly bodies, even though the flesh has been put to death, it's still, we still carry it around. So that means there's always going to be a struggle with sin. There's always going to be a struggle with temptation. 
there's always going to be a struggle with this desire. What I really desire is to, uh, you know, to get mine or to make sure that I'm taken care of or to do what's best for me. So that's an ongoing struggle. But we have the indwelling power of the Spirit, this, this enabling power. The same power that was at work in raising Jesus from the dead is at work in us, enabling us to forgive, allowing us to experience forgiveness. In Christ, we, we are actually totally transformed and made new. So we go from being self-centered, self-loving, vengeful, grudge-holding people to forgiving people. If you are in Christ, if you have been united with Christ, you are a forgiving person. This is what you are. This is your identity. You are a forgiving person if you're in Christ. It's what it means to be in Christ, to be united with Christ. You have experienced God's forgiveness. You have the power of God residing in you. And then, and it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Of course not. It doesn't mean when somebody harms you, you know, you, I, I was, Janine made, I, I walked up here while we were singing. I, lo, I didn't know what this was. There was a, this is a denomination form. But I walked up just to see what it was. And Janine said, it's not your time yet. She was messing with me. And I said, well, I just got to make sure that that's not an angry note by somebody. I want to go up and encounter that right when I'm getting ready to teach. I need about five minutes to process it, right? When you're in pastoral ministry, I've had people say some unbelievable things to me. Some people wanted to kill me, you know, at the end of a Christmas Eve service back in, 2016, I had a guy come up. I didn't even know. I didn't even know the guy came up to me and said, I wish you would die right now. I'm like, well, Merry Christmas to you, I guess. I don't know how to respond to that. And it was all because, I don't know, we didn't sing the song he wanted. Um, but my, well, I don't know, do I have a point in that? I hope I do. What's the point I was trying to make? Yeah, yeah. So the point I was trying to make was we, we are forgiving people if we are in Christ. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. But it means because of that power within us, then it is, it's, we, we want to forgive because we understand what we have been forgiven. So at this point, you may be saying, okay, well, how do I actually get there? Right? I, how do I actually get there? Uh, well, how you get there depends on where you're starting from, right? If you're at a place where you just refuse to forgive, uh, then this is a very dangerous place to be. And, and I would appeal to you, uh, with humility and in the heart of a, of a shepherd, you really need to search your heart and be open before God. If you're saying, I will not forgive, that's a dangerous place to be. Because it may be, and it is, if you hold on to it indefinitely, an indication that you have not received forgiveness. If you are saying, I will not forgive, that's a very, very dangerous place to be. Now, maybe you're not there. Maybe you're saying, I want to forgive. Um, I don't know how to do it. Then I would say the starting point for you is to pray that God would make you aware of, more aware of his holiness, your sinfulness, the length to which he went to save you and the love that he has lavished on you in Jesus Christ. So the more that you become aware of that, the more, in the words of Timothy Keller, that washes over you, the more you become inclined to, and in fact, eager to forgive, right? Maybe, maybe you're at a place where you say, I want to forgive, and I know I need to forgive, and I know all that I've been forgiven. I just don't know 
you know, where to start with that person, then I would say then in the spirit of Romans 12, just demonstrate love for that person in some way. Let that person know that you love that person, that they've wronged you, that they've hurt you. Of course, you know, eventually you want to get to Matthew 18, 15, and so on, going to that person and, and, and showing that person how they've wronged you. But maybe you're not there, that, and you, there yet, and you just say, God, help me, uh, help me demonstrate love for this person. Help me proactively show love. Because as we see, you know, Jesus has this great statement that where your, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Um, you know, we see that, that as we demonstrate certain actions, often our heart follows that. And so we show love, we demonstrate love, we're proactive in showing love, and we see and trust that God's going to bring our heart along for that. Okay, uh, uh, very quickly here, let me look at, I just want to make one more point here about this prayer. Um, one final word, and that is, um, so like other prayers in Jesus' day, this was the, the, the Lord's Prayer, or whatever you want to call it, the Disciples' Prayer, it was meant to be a launching point um, for, for other prayers, other requests. It's, it's called, um, in, in ancient Near East, it's called a hatima. And what that meant was that you pray this prayer, and then from the Lord's Prayer, then you go forward, you add your own requests, your own petitions, and so on. So it was never meant to be the full extent of what we pray. Now, why would I bring that up? Because if you have a King James Version or, or maybe even an NASB, you, you have, probably have the phrase, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, what happened was toward the early part of the second century, this prayer got a fixed ending added, added to it uh, in the church. Now, this part, for thine is the power and the glory and so on, that doesn't appear in any of the earliest, earlier, or most reliable manuscripts, which doesn't mean that it's not true. It is true. The kingdom and power and glory do belong to God forever. So that's all true. But it was not likely part of Jesus' uh, prayer here. The early church didn't like that it remained open, at least ostensibly. So the scribes may have added to it. None of that really matters except for the fact that when you pray the Lord's Prayer, which you can do in your home, you can do, you know, we do court, we'll do corporately in the church, whatever it is, it's, it's, it's a launching point then for us to bring our own specific requests, struggles, concerns, fears, all that to the Lord. So it's, it's not, you know, you don't just pray this prayer and then that sort of constitutes your prayer life. I mean, everybody in this room knows that. But even back then, it wasn't like Jesus was saying, oh, pray this and you're done. The, the whole point of the Hatima was you, you pray that, but then you add to it your own, again, concerns, questions, fears, struggles, burdens, and so on.